What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We do this program for our non-Catholic listeners. Uh, That could be you. Uh, Perhaps you uh, fell away from the Catholic faith as a child, uh, or maybe you've never been a Catholic, uh, but you still have some questions about the Catholic faith that you would really like to get resolved for whatever reason. Well, we are here for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-288. EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, you'll want to dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address is ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Michael McCall is our uh, phone screener today. Also, Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there live right now. Put your question in the comments box, if you would, and then um, Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing well. How are you today, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question. You may remember this from yesterday's program. Do you remember... uh, well, I'll just, I'll just read what we have here. This is from James. Dr. Anders, I am scandalized by your answer to an emailed question regarding the rosary as the greatest prayer after the Mass. You posed your answer in such a way that sounded disrespectful and dismissive that strikes at the heart of Marian devotion, the Most Holy Rosary. Your analogy conflated your comparison. One is a humble man's prayer. The other is 10,000 rosaries not in accord with God's will. Really? How about comparing apples to apples instead of oranges? For one, Mary is in complete union with God's will. Even if a rosary was prayed not in accord with God's will, her intercessory power with God will cut to the heart of the matter and make it efficacious nonetheless. His answer, yes, no, or not now, is his holy will. Flipping your analogy, if a truly humble man is perfectly contrite, yet utters a prayer not in accord with God's will, it follows that his won't be worth that cup of water that you mentioned, right? And that's from James. Yeah, thanks. So maybe we should go back to the context. I'm trying to get my head wrapped around the original question, but uh, I don't remember what the original questioner asked precisely. But it was about the efficacy of the rosary and his subjective state of mind, I think. I believe I think. so, okay. yeah, yeah. And and my answer, what I intend to convey, is that there's nothing magical about the rosary per se, right, or any particular Catholic devotion. I don't care if it's the rosary or the divine office or even the mass, for that matter, that will, that where the, where the, where the ritual itself, even functioning ex opere operato, can remedy... Uh, the fault of charity in our own hearts, right? So the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph, I believe it's 2211, but it's around that part of the Catechism, uh, in discussing the vice of superstition, mm-hmm. says that even the sacraments themselves can be used superstitiously if we presume 
that the that the ritual action will do the job without our proper disposition. If I okay. can jump in, yeah. I'm I'm reminded of uh, the and this has happened time and time again, drug dealers who sure. who die wearing like 15 scapulars thinking that that is going to keep them in, in safe territory. Ex- exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this. all the doctors of the church confirm this. I mean, Francis de Sales wrote a famous treatise called um, Introduction to the Devout Life, and he begins by disabusing people of false notions of what counts as a devotion or piety. And he says, look, it's not, it's not how many prayers you recite, no matter what their form. Um, it's not how many alms you give. It's not how much you fast. There's no activity of the Christian life that intrinsically counts as a devotion if you lack the true love of God and neighbor. Mm-hmm. And all of those other things are means, not ends. And it is perfectly possible for any specific devotional action itself to be sinful if your intent is sinful, if your heart is not right with God or neighbor. Um, and uh, Christ himself talks about this. If you're going to bring your gift to the altar, this is, of course, in the context of, of Jewish temple worship, uh-huh. if you bring your gift to the altar and, you're, and you have something against your brother, first go be reconciled to your brother yes, and then come back and make your gift. Okay? Now... Um, you 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 made a deeper assertion about the nature of Our Lady's intercession as it relates to our intent. Okay, and you suggested that even if our intent were deficient, now you didn't say sinful. That's really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sin. I'm not talking about you know some fault of awareness. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but you're, anyway, your suggestion was that if there's some deficiency in our intent, that Mary would make up the difference, as it were. I'm familiar with this theological opinion, and it's credited to St. Louis de Montfort, okay? Uh, and, but I will add, that's not dogmatic teaching. That's de Montfort's particular private theological opinion. And if his opinion is taken in a way that would suggest that we don't need charity— then, then that would be incorrect, yeah. right? We have to have charity. Now, there are prayers that God will answer without charity. Uh, in particular, uh, the, 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 the sinner's prayer, you know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm, yeah. right, when I go into the confessional, if I'm not in the state of grace, if I'm in the state of mortal sin, if God doesn't hear the penitent prayer of the mortal sinner, then no one ever gets out of mortal sin, right? But when James says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much— He's really talking about charity in the soul, right? And Christ makes this distinction so many times. He says, look, if you pray on street corners to be seen by men, then you have your reward in full. Yeah. And if we were to translate that into a modern Catholic idiom, you know, if you go to daily Mass and pray the rosary to be seen by men, you're getting your reward in full. Does anyone do that? Yeah, they do it. Now, I remember one time... Uh, Well, I'll tell you the story another time. Here comes the break. (laughs) Okay. Well, very good. Uh, James, we hope that clarifies it for you, sir. Thank you so much uh, for your very thoughtful email. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Martin, a first-time caller and a first-time listener in Burlington, Vermont. We'll also talk with, uh, gotta love this, Dorothy in Kansas. Don't know if we're going to get Toto on, but we'll hopefully try. All coming up here on this edition of Call to Communion on EWTN. 
It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. We have a couple lines open for you. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you'd like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. Here's that number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a second here. First, let me tell you about a wonderful new book now available from EWTN Publishing. What a great bedtime book this is, Good Night Jesus, a children's bedtime story by Kate Snyder, illustrated by Anna Morelli. This delightful book helps kiddos reflect on God's blessings in their lives, and the captivating images convey the importance of faith and family, friends and fun, and biggest of all, a personal relationship with Jesus. Again, the book, Good Night Jesus, a children's bedtime story now available from EWTN Publishing. Go to EWTNRC.com, check it out. Uh, you can put Good Night Jesus in the search box, and I'm sure you'll find it. EWTNRC.com. So before we go to the phones, uh, you were uh, thinking about a, a story that something happened to you in your past. Yeah, I, I attended a church one time, and this was before I was Catholic, but you could tell the story about a Catholic parish, too. Sure, sure. Uh, this was a Protestant church I used to go to where there was a real culture of, um, of uh, sort of performative prayer. You know, I mean, they really were genuinely prayer for people, yeah, but there was yeah. also a sense of like, you know, you kind of have to show up, you have to be there and ha- go to the meetings and be present, and and uh, they would have really early morning prayer. And uh, it was a person I knew who who was determined to be the first person at the prayer meeting, and that worked. You know, show up at five o'clock until some other person decided they were going to be there at four. Ooh, and then person A started getting there at three. Wow, and then person B started getting there at two. And and before long, like, these two individuals were p- competing for the privilege of being, or the dignity of being the first person at the prayer meeting. They're showing up, like, for the 5 a.m. prayer meeting at, like, 11 o'clock at night, you know? Wow. I mean, it, was, it, it got ridiculous fast, you know? And uh, point being, none of that has anything to do with genuine prayer. Very good. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Let's uh, begin here with Martin, a first-time caller and first-time listener in Burlington, Vermont, listening on the great Our Lady of Perpetual Help Radio. Hey, Martin, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, uh, Dr. Anders. Uh, I have a, a short question. It may be a little complex, but it's a short question, and I need a simple yes or no answer to this question. Is that all right? Well, it depends on how you frame it. I mean, if, uh, if you frame the question in a way that boxes me into a false dichotomy, then I'll call out the false dichotomy. But as long as I don't detect a false dichotomy, then I'll give you a yes or no answer. Go, go right ahead, Martin. Okay. okay. This, is, this is pretty straightforward. So is there an infallible and irreformable dogma of the Roman Catholic Church? which states in unambiguous terms that the Catholic Church has never had, does not now have, and will never have the God-given right to persecute nonviolent heretics or to have such human persons persecuted on its behalf by any secular authority. Sure, thanks. I appreciate the question. Uh, I would make the argument that the ordinary magisterium of the Church has taught very plainly 
that there is no right to persecute people for religious dissent. Now, that's clearly the teaching of the Second Vatican Council and Dignitatis Humanae. Mm-hmm. It clearly undergirds all of the Church's policy positions, magisterial teaching, documents, uh, appointments, law, jurisdiction. I mean, the, the modern Catholic regime is run on the presumption of the right to freedom of conscience. I mean, that's baked into the way that the Catholic Church operates today, uh-huh. um, and it's explicitly the teaching of the Council. Has it been articulated as a dogma? Well, most things that Catholics do and presume and think and believe have not been articulated as a dogma by the extraordinary magisterium. Um, so that, but the fact that it lacks that kind of definition doesn't mean it's not authoritative. It is the authoritative teaching of the Catholic Church that mm. you cannot persecute people for religious dissent. Um, and an important topic and teaching that is. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Martin, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Sean is a first-time caller from Prince Edward Island in Canada, listening on his Echo device, his uh, uh, Alexa, if you will. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, well, I love this show. It means so much to me. Um I heard a prominent Catholic broadcaster say one reason God chose to reveal himself to humanity through the Jewish people was because during that age they were the best people to write and copy scripture. But we also know God kind of killed that religion by allowing the temple to be destroyed and the people to be scattered throughout the world. So my question is, is it correct to view biblical Judaism as a kind of transitory religion? whose purpose was only to set up the Catholic Church, the ultimate goal God really had in mind? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. There, there's a lot in the premise of the question that I that I really want to call into question. I don't like the way the question is framed, I think, and it paints me in a box in how I try to answer the question. So if you'll permit me the dignity, I'd like to reframe the question more broadly and just discuss the relationship of the Hebrew people and Judaism to Christianity, if I could do that, okay? So uh, the way the Church understands salvation history, God called Abraham, uh, who was not a Jew, by the way, I mean, he circumcised himself and his children, uh, and is the progenitor of what would become ultimately Judaism, but Abraham didn't know he was a Jew. I mean, the word Jew comes from Judah, which is one of Jacob's sons, and he, he's you know generations away from Abraham, even having the the name right. Um, but God called Abraham uh, from Ur of the Chaldees for a specific purpose, namely that through his progeny that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's a pretty broad statement, right? Through your descendants, all all humanity would be blessed. Now, one of the most important ways that humanity was blessed through the descendants of Abraham was to give birth to Jesus the Messiah, who would ultimately reconcile the world to God. It's not the only way. Uh, And there was a great deal of preparation for the coming of the Messiah prior to that. Um, The people of Israel, the the ethnic people and the nation of Israel and the Hebrew people, again, are not the same thing as Judaism, Um, quote-unquote. There's an ethnic religious state there uh, that was diverse and 
you know, more or less united around the worship of the one God, the God of Abraham and the Mosaic law. I mean, obviously with outliers and exceptions and points of view and so forth. Uh, and the monarchy was a huge thing in ancient Israel, uh, as well as temple worship. Uh, if you went back to 10th century Israel and you looked at what was going on in 10th century Israel religiously, it would not look much like modern Judaism. Um, and uh, you wouldn't be able to look at that and go, well, you know, Christianity is inevitably going to grow out of this, nor would you be able to look at it and say Judaism will inevitably grow out of this. Um, Christianity and what we know of as Judaism are both parallel developments out of that Hebrew stock uh, in response to the trauma of the exile and, uh, and the Greco-Roman imperial expansion over the ancient world and Judea in particular. And each of them was, uh, has continuity with the biblical tradition. I mean, Jews can very rightly say the origins of who and what we are are in Abraham and the Mosaic and the Davidic tradition. Christians can also say that with equal honesty and be correct about that, and they read the data in very divergent ways, quite obviously. All right. Now, from the Christian point of view, the ultimate point of the call of Abraham and, the, and Moses and the Mosaic Law was in anticipation of the Messiah. But that doesn't make the whole stream of historical Judaism down through the centuries irrelevant to salvation history or to the human race. Far from it. And St. Paul says in the book of Romans, and the Catholic Church has always taught, that, uh, that the Jewish people, as also descendants of Abraham, have their own unique destiny in God's plan. And it really isn't for me to handicap God and tell you how that plays out. Yeah. Appreciate that, Sean. Uh, thanks so much for your call from Prince Edward Island. Call to communion here on EWTN on this Wednesday afternoon. We have some lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A most excellent time to call in. Uh, we'll hopefully get your question on the air if you call now, 833 833- 288-3986. Derek's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Derek says, when Jesus descended to the hell of the Old Testament saints, after the resurrection, did he remove it, or is it still existing? Right. Thank you. So I think it would be a mistake to think of the Limbus of the Fathers as a kind of spatially located holding chamber, mm. you know, that you could speak of in terms of like, well, you know, does that space still exist? Because the separated souls of the dead don't take up space. They don't take up space. And so it, it, to think about them being located in a place is to really misunderstand the nature of a spiritual substance. Rather, uh, the separated souls exist in an existential state, not a place their state has changed in that they now enjoy the beatific vision. Okay. Well, there you go. Appreciate that. Uh, Derek, thanks so much uh, for watching us on YouTube. Also on YouTube today is George, who says, uh, Tom, please let Dr. Andrews know that his book played a part in saving my marriage. I profoundly appreciate that, and I'm grateful to EWTN for the opportunity to publish it, and I'm grateful to Tom Price for 
slogging it out with me for hours on end <laughs> as I learned how difficult it is to read an audiobook. It's it's tough without going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And making mouth noises. Well, we might you know we haven't talked about that book in a while, and the the, the title of the book is "The Catholic Church Saved My Marriage." Uh, it was uh, yeah yeah. Now the the title is a little bit deceptive because it, you know it's not a self help book about marriage. Okay. Um, now it has that may help people in their marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is the, the total story of my conversion to Catholicism, mm-hmm. the theological struggles that I went through on the way into the Catholic faith, um, the effect that that had on my family and on my marriage specifically, and then ultimately the positive outcome it had on my marriage and family. And 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 I wrote the book the way I did, uh, because you know if if the Catholic faith can't touch you in your marriage and family life, the most intimate relationships that you've got, then it really isn't worth a hill of beans, right? So I didn't just want to write another apologetics book. I wanted to write one that really aimed at the relevance of Catholicism for all the struggles that we go through in life. And so there's a lot of theology in it. There's a lot of church history in it, as well as a lot of personal reflection and a lot about my own story as well. It's uh, called, again, uh, The Catholic Church Saved My Marriage. It's available from EWTNRC.com. Uh, you can also check out the uh, audiobook of that same uh, by checking that out as well. Here's a quick question regarding um, Monday's show. Uh, there was a question about the Nicene Creed regarding the phrase, and rose again. You may yeah, remember yeah, that. Yeah. So James in uh, North Carolina says, would the again refer to living and not so much rising, as in Jesus rose to human life the first time at his birth uh, and rose to human life again at the resurrection. So would that again actually refer to the living? Um, yeah, I appreciate the question. You're, you're really over-exegeting this ah, word. Ah, okay. okay. It's an English translation of the Latin single word resurrexit, which just means you were dead, now you're alive. So that's it. Yeah. Okay, very good. Called to communion here on EWTN. Let's go uh, quickly here to Paul, a first-time caller driving through Illinois, listening on YouTube. And uh, Paul, what's on your mind today? I have a question about the transfiguration. Okay. If if Moses and Elijah were there, Jesus had not yet passed away. The curtain was not torn, and so forth. How are they there if Jesus didn't die for us yet? Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate the question. Good question. Don't know the answer, right? I mean, in other words, I don't know, like, metaphysically, how is it that they were visible to the apostles? Um, they would have been present uh, in the Limbus of the Fathers, which is an abode of natural happiness. They had the grace of God. Um, they were united to him in charity. They just hadn't been admitted to the beatific vision yet. Somehow or another, God opened the eyes of the apostles, and they had this vision of their reality. They're witnessing the law and the prophets. They're witnessing to Christ. Um, you know, should we consider this to be... Um, you know, was there a material object on Mount Tabor um, that reflected the rays of the sun and, you know, hit the cornea of the apostles and, you know, worked on uh, the biology of the eye in the normal way that we have vision? Or was it something more like uh, an illumination, an opening of the disciples' consciousness to the reality that the law and the prophets witnessed unto Christ? I mean, uh, the details of that are beyond us. And theologies of a variety of opinions on how to work that out. But in terms of the where were Moses and Elijah, metaphysically speaking, they would have been in the limbus of the fathers, 
uh, that abode of natural happiness for the saved of the Old Testament as they waited the coming of the Messiah. Paul, thanks so much uh, for your call. Uh, to clarify, Paul is listening on FM 92.7, driving through Illinois. Got a lot of radio stations, AM and FM, both uh, in the state of Illinois and throughout the Midwest. If you'd like to know more about that, go to EWTN.com, click on the word radio, and then if you'll scroll to the bottom of that page, there's a little red button that says affiliates, and you'll see a map of the United States with all of our AM and FM radio stations. In a moment, we'll uh, go to Nancy in Seattle, and we've got a couple lines open for you as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Stay with us. Glad you're with us for a call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. We have two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, the Station of the Cross. They are now celebrating their 24th year with EWTN. I can still remember when they had one station in Buffalo, I believe it was. They now serve New York, the state of New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Ohio with 20 stations. Congratulations to Jim Wright and his great team there at Station of the Cross from all of us at EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now. Here is Nancy in Seattle listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hi, Nancy. What's on your mind today? Well, hi, Tom Price and Dr. Anders. I listen every day practically. Um, anyway, um, I, with the caller that called just a, a little while back, and who was you had talked about uh, Louis de Montfort. Um, you know, I, I just could I just couldn't believe my ears. But when you, you were talking to her, because just yesterday my neighbor was telling me that you know she was saying her rosary every day, and we talked of Louis de Montfort, and um, a direct quote from him was. Never will anyone who says the, that says his rosary every day will be led astray. This is a statement I would gladly sign with my blood, you know. And, you know, de Montfort's uh, passion and his devotion and his uh, absolute, um, you know, I mean, sacrifice of, of his heart practically, I mean, it sounds like, uh, to the Blessed Mother is so powerful that, um, you know, sometimes I think that uh, it's confusing, uh, uh, sometimes the, the power and the passion and the fittingness of, uh, of the, you know, the Blessed Mother, and yesterday, of course, being the assumption, and uh, the Blessed Mother who always does the will of God and that God permits and that, you know, the fittingness of the Blessed Mother, um, you know, being able to um, do miraculous things uh, in, in her status. And it's just that, Dr. Anders, you know, I take these things so seriously, uh, you know, the 15 promises of the, of the Blessed Mother and, you know, um, you know, the consecration of her, uh, of my life, especially on the solemnity of the Assumption. And it's not that I lack uh, great charity for God and for neighbor. I, I do. I do truly have those, so they're not a differing thing. But I guess that I just need to be straightened out on this uh, and to kind of get more clarity and to understand more deeply and how I can understand more deeply dogma sort of versing uh, devotion, no matter how passionate I feel or the 
persons uh, I speak to or read about. Oh, yeah, great. I really appreciate the question a lot. Um, how, how wonderful. And this is really essential stuff. Thank you. Um, so first of all, let me just say that, that the, the Church's position is always that, that the devotions, and here I'm talking about specific prayer practices that we inherit from, from tradition. Yeah, yeah. You know, some saint or noble person has written a prayer or a particular practice and given this to our consideration and it becomes popular and people are attracted to it, whether that be the rosary of the Stations of the Cross or, or the, the scapular or what have you, you know, these kinds of behaviors, um, they're useful and the Church uh, encourages us to, to make use of them. They can have great value in the spiritual life. And, uh, and there are theologians that have waxed long and eloquent about their favorite devotions and have said all kinds of uh, superlative things about this one or the other. And de Montfort is one that comes to mind as sort of paramount in that vein. I mean, he clearly has his preferences for how Catholics ought to carry on particular devotions, and he is a you know, devotee of those practices. And, uh, and says some pretty uh, amazing things about how he thinks they're efficacious. It, you know, the, the danger, in my judgment, yes. right, the danger in my judgment is that we have to always make the main thing the main thing. Jesus said there is but one thing necessary. St. Paul says... These things, three thing, these three things remain: faith, hope, and charity. And the greatest of these is charity. Um, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is charity. Do I love God? Do I love my neighbor? Everything else in the Catholic Church, everything else is a means to an end. Everything else is a means to an end. Saint Augustine of Hippo, who's my favorite, once said that the entire dispensation of our faith. He said this in his book on the freedom of the will. Mm. The entire disposition of our faith, we should treat like a road or a chariot, the purpose of which is to convey us to an end. And that end is the love of God. It, it is only useful insofar as it takes us to that end. Now, every other thing in the, in the Catholic faith is, to a certain extent, more or less, relative. Some things are more relative than others. Devotions are very relative because, say, you take de Montfortian spirituality and the rosary, very beneficial for many people. In the West, in the West, this is not the tradition in the Catholic East. It's not the tradition in the Catholic Middle East. Uh, it's not the tradition in huge swaths of Catholic history. Are those saints any less sanctified because they didn't do de Montfort's favorite devotion? Of course not. Of course not. You know, any more than, say, a Greek Catholic who has this devotion to the Jesus prayer, mm -hmm. that's wonderful. Have at it. Pray the Jesus prayer. But to suggest that, say, the de Montfortians over here, that they're missing out because they don't have the Jesus prayer, right? That's, that's kind of falling into Paul's admonition that, you know, one person says, I follow Paul, one says, I follow Apollos. Mm, yeah. Right? The important thing is to follow Christ. One person says, I, f I follow de Montfort, one says, I follow Ignatius of Loyola, one says, I follow St. Francis, one says, I follow St. Thomas. The important thing is to follow Christ. St. Paul said, follow me insofar as I follow Christ. Sure. Right? And so I don't want to get between anybody and their devotion, 
but I absolutely want to keep one's devotion between getting between someone and their neighbor. And, and like, personally, and again, I'm just speaking for myself here. Yeah, yeah. Is it possible to be just head over heels infatuated with Louis de Montfort and the Rosary and uh, not to be good to your neighbor? I've seen it with my own eyes. I mean, there, there is such a thing as fanaticism. It exists. It's real. It's a big issue. And it is possible to be a devotional fanatic and be very uncharitable to your neighbor. And I, I mean, I've got specific instances in my mind that I'm not going to enumerate sure, of sure. people who I've seen treat others abominably with, uh, you know, with rosary in hand, so to mm, speak, and DeMontford yeah. open in the other. Yeah. Right. I'm not putting those devotions down, you understand. Right. The point is you can't make the main thing not the main mm. thing. And so, you know, I, I've mentioned it before. Francis de Sales, doctor of the church, is a helpful guide in this. Um, something like his book, Introduction to the Devout Life, especially chapter one, where he talks exactly on this issue, is, uh, is very helpful, I think. What a great call. Nancy, thank you so much for it. Glad you're checking in in Seattle. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Liza now, a first-time caller from Plano, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio, AM 910. Hey there, Liza, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon. Um, I was just wondering, in my mind, I have this, like, split. I'm hoping you can sew together for me. But i thinking about when I accomplish something or work. We just lost Liza. Uh-oh. Uh, uh, Liza, Liza, your, Liza your, your phone was cutting out. Could you repeat your statement there, please? Okay. Um... I'm afraid it'll cut out again. I don't know how to prevent that. Um, <laughs> just in the middle of a big city, I have no idea. Um, so I, when I do something good or I work hard for something or accomplish something, I'm supposed to, or I feel like I'm glad, I'm supposed to praise God for that, to congratulate myself that I did this would be price. Oh, boy. We lost Liza again. Let me see if I can uh, re, uh, restate what uh, she gave to our screener. Should I uh, praise God when good things happen? What about when they don't happen? Um, yes, yes. So there's a passage of Scripture, Habakkuk 3, verse 17 and 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I apologize for the scripture version that I'm going to use. It's just the one that I pulled up. Okay. 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 It's actually not a Catholic translation. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. So things are not going well with Habakkuk. Yeah. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. Right? Beautiful. The idea is good and bad are going to happen. Yeah. My disposition needs to be one of gratitude and thanks to God. Right? Um, you may have heard of a famous prayer. It's attributed to the Protestant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr um, called the Serenity Prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think that's a great Catholic prayer. I think it really echoes the prayer of our Lord. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Or Our Lady who said, be it done to me according to thy word. Mm, Yeah, for sure. 
thank you so much for your call. We're uh, very sorry that the uh, phone connection didn't hang in there, but these things do happen in this uh, technological era. Call to communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us this weekend for The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. That's coming up Saturday afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern, and uh, an encore at 7 p.m. Eastern. If you've never heard the show, I would certainly recommend it. Michael O'Neill delves into the fascinating world of miracles, taking listeners on a hunt that explores the greatest mysteries and marvels of the Catholic Church. Very popular weekend program for us. Check it out Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Eastern, right here and only here on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now for Jonathan, first-time caller in Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Jonathan, what's on your mind today, sir? I'll be very quick. Uh, I think the, the previous callers and uh, Dr. David Andrews probably covered this now and, and in the past many, many times. But the role of uh, well, this, uh, Dr. Andrews, you're a convert to the faith, um, and you probably understand uh, you had to come uh, in it, uh, Obviously, you had to come to grasp uh, uh, the role of Mother Mary, Mother of God, as a convert. Um, my wife was sharing with me yesterday that, you know, because of the ascension of uh, yesterday, that a lot of the groups, social media, who are uh, former Catholics or 100% Protestants or, or whatever, uh, were kind of bashing in a, in a very charitable way uh, the mother role of Mother Mary. Uh, so what is it about the, what, what's, what's the stumbling block that even back then I think that uh, Lutheran and Calvin understood Mary, God, uh, Mary's role as a, as a, as a uh, godmother. What is the stumbling block? I mean, yeah, me? thanks. I, I think I can answer that question. And by the way, you need to add that to your lexicon. Charitable bashing. Love it. That was a good line. Love it. Okay, yeah. So, briefly, Catholic position on Mary. Mary is, of course, the mother of God. She's immaculately conceived in view of that dignity. And through the gift of her immaculate conception, she lived a life of outstanding holiness and charity. Um, and is, uh, as what is Wordsworth said, our tainted nature is solitary boast. Right? Yeah. She's the highest of all creatures. And uh, through her cooperation with divine grace, merited enormously, and through her merits and prayers and intercessions, she intercedes for the church in accord with the will of Christ. And, and he, as he does with every saint, uh, he distributes his grace through intermediaries. And of those through whom he distributes grace, uh, Mary's intercession is the most powerful. So that's the church's position all around. Now, why do Protestants have such a problem with that? I think for a number of reasons. Um, honestly, today, contemporary Protestants, I think the biggest reason they have a problem with Mary is because their tradition has told them to, right? I mean, they've, they've, been gr- they've grown up being taught that Catholic practice is idolatry and that they should hate it. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I have a, a friend who has a friend who's a missionary in a non-Catholic country um, in, among a population that has historically been at odds with the Catholic Church, and um, and he once said about his non-Catholic neighbors that they just they don't know why they hate Catholics so much, right? That's just the way you do it, you wow, know. Wow, yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of it. I think there's a lot of just outright prejudice. But if you get into the theological rationale behind that prejudice, what arguments do they bring, and what what lies behind that? So, um, historic. Well, all right. For many Protestants, the, the the sort of the fanfare surrounding Marian piety uh, seems excessive to them. 
right? So, and there's a lot of fanfare around Marian piety in the church. And so that practically speaking, the, the devotional affections and the attitudes and, the, and the, the, the artistic imagination of the people in some places seems to be so taken up with the person of Mary that it leaves little room for, for anybody else or anything else. And, um, and that, if that's true, uh, that would veer from true devotion into superstition. Have Catholics ever been guilty of superstition? Yeah, absolutely. So is there such a thing as Marian superstition within the Catholic Church? Yes, right? We, Tom was mentioning earlier in the show, like, you know, the drug dealer who, who you know, covers himself up in rosaries or images of Our Lady of Guadalupe or something and thinks that that's going to somehow protect him from his ill deeds. I mean, that would be, that would be a very ill-conceived Marian piety. Have people ever been guilty of that kind of thing in church history? Yeah, sure they have, right? Those kinds of superstitions and impieties do exist, and that is, of course, really degrading to Our Lady and not at all honoring to her. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I th- my personal opinion as a scholar of the Reformation is that there were major problems uh, in Catholic piety in the 15th and 16th century. Mm. Um, there were institutional things in the church whereby the laity were insulated to a certain extent from liturgical piety, uh, or their mode of participating in the liturgy was very different than it is today. And they were encouraged, uh, both implicitly and explicitly, to develop extra liturgical uh, pieties, extra liturgical devotions that could sometimes be in competition to uh, devotion to Christ and the Blessed Sacrament, believe it or not. And, uh, and it's that kind of situation that prompted some of the critiques of the Reformers. I might add, they also prompted critiques of un-Catholic Reformers as well. I mean, you find Catholic writers who also were said, you know, we need a reform of devotion, we need a reform of the liturgy, uh, we need a way to engage the laity more directly. Um, so I think that's historically what got behind it. Now, you know, when I, what, what I think about all that, well, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, and you don't throw out the mother of God because there's Marian superstition. You could take any aspect of Catholic faith or dogma, any aspect at all, and you could find a group in Catholic or Protestant history that has developed a superstitious appropriation of that particular practice or dogma. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just the way humans are. You know, I mean, I grew up in the evangelical church where they were very big on the question of personal conversion. Personal conversion is a good thing. It's a good thing. But when it becomes reduced to a formula mm. that you can repeat out of the four spiritual laws, right, because you've opened a little yellow pamphlet and it says, read these words and you go to heaven, that's, that makes a mockery of the drama of personal conversion. It turns it, it into something trivial, right? I think that's a superstition. I think it's just as bad and just as damning as Catholic superstitions. And, I mean, I could, I could play this game all day. I, sure. could, I could enumerate um, a, a litany of follies, right, in Catholics and Protestants and other religious traditions that we could call superstition. Erasmus of Rotterdam once wrote a book called In Praise of Folly, which was a satire of all the idiocies of his contemporary culture. We can play that game, right? The solution is not throw out piety, throw out devotion, throw out Marian piety or Marian dogma, uh, any more than it's to throw out conversion. It's to have a, a sound, rational, um, uh, dogmatic, biblical Catholicism that's grounded in the sound practice of the virtues. Jonathan, is that helpful for you? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I know he, Dr. Anders, you've covered this before, but, uh, you know, uh, we're not, our response is never going to be, uh, it's got to be charitable, no matter what. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. 
For sure. Jonathan, thanks so much for your call. We have to move on here. Uh, Mike is a first-time caller from Carmel, Indiana, in the uh, Indianapolis area, listening on YouTube today. Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. <clears throat> um, I had uh, spinal surgery uh, 15 months ago. In the process, they damaged my spinal cord. Um, I, I um, spend my day, the last 15 months, I spent my day laying down all day. Um, I can walk, but it's very, very painful. I can sit, but it's very, very painful. Um, you know, I used to teach uh, high school theology. I did this unit for years on redemptive suffering because the kids didn't understand, you know, why people have to suffer. And, you know, at the time, it was like, you know, I read, we read Veritatis Splendor and a number of other saints, and, you know, so I got all this head stuff, but when it came, when it comes to my life right now, I'm, I'm just kind of angry at God, and, and I know He didn't do it, but I, it's difficult, and I, I listen to you all the time, and I just wondered, maybe you had some words of wisdom. Man, Mike, I don't know about wisdom, but I have sympathy, because I know exactly how you feel. Uh, do boy, do I ever know how you feel? Yeah. And uh, I mean, there is a there is a world of difference between being able to articulate a dogma, and then being able to appropriate it into your life existentially. Man, do I understand that uh, completely. Um, I, you know, what strikes me is, I'll bet you. First of all, I'm really sorry for your tragedy. I, I mean, I'm just profoundly sorry. I'll bet you anything that you have become far more compassionate towards uh, those who suffer from spinal cord injuries. Yeah. I, I mean, can't imagine that you would not have been. Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine that you are not profound, much more profoundly sympathetic to people who suffer from any number of physical disabilities. Right? And, and so here's the, here's the challenge for those of us that are in Catholic ministry or have been. We're so used to thinking that the gift that we have to give to others is in what we say. That we neglect the real gift, which is in who we are. And, and being confused, being angry with God, being in pain. Like, this is what you have to give people that's, as a gift. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be ashamed of that. I wouldn't think that, like, well, I somehow have to get out of my existential state so that I can get back to being helpful. Maybe you'll find that you've never really been all that helpful until now. Mm. Or in comparison to now, like what seemed like help before pales in comparison. Maybe you'll be able to sit and listen to someone who's angry with God. Or who feels alienated or lost or alone or in deep pain. And you can be there for them and just listen. But you can listen with an empathy and a concern and a solicitude that they can feel and maybe you're not telling them about redemptive suffering. Maybe you're not articulating Christian doctrine to them. Maybe you're just being Christ to them. Yeah. And that's ultimately far, far, far more valuable. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, the secular psychologist Carl Rogers um, is famous for the belief, and, you know, other therapists have questions about this, that that the primary way that you can help somebody change in a therapeutic relationship is just to be there for them empathetically. He has a book on the topic, I think, called On Becoming a Person. Mm -hmm. It's not real friendly to religious perspectives, but at least in this respect, I think he's on to what the Pope means when he talks about accompaniment. 
Yeah. Like the, the the way to help people change and grow and find meaning is primarily to be there with them and listen to them and show them that you love and that you care. And in the and in the face of an empathetic person who regards them with dignity and doesn't think they're a piece of poo, they find the strength of character to overcome their circumstances. And maybe you're now equipped to be that kind of person to somebody else who's in similar circumstances. God bless you, Mike. We uh, we will keep you in our prayers. And uh, David, I'm reminded of the time, and, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, when you were in a real funk, and uh, it was actually a priest who came and sat with you for hours, didn't say a word. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Just awesome. Really appreciate that. Uh, Mike, thanks again uh, for your call. Uh, a real quick question here from David. In the Apostles' Creed, what is the significance of Christ descending into hell? Yep, never heard that one before, have we, Tom? No, no, no. <laughs> Church teaches that Christ descended to the dead to liberate the souls of the righteous dead of the Old Covenant. You know, your Isaiahs and your Moseses and your Abrahams and these characters who uh -huh. are awaiting the coming of the Messiah. It's not the hell of the damned. Okay. Very important to clarify that. Very important to clarify that. We did get a call from Patrick in Indiana. He could not hold on the line, uh, but he just wanted to call in and, and pass on how much he enjoys the show and your kind responses. Well, we appreciate Patrick, and we please keep listening to us, and please pray for us, and pass the word along to your friends. So if we don't lead with kindness, we're in trouble, aren't we? Um, yeah, and I get in big trouble with my wife. She'll listen to the show and be like, you aren't nice today. You got to get back, get the nice hat back on, Dave. <laughs> this is the one thing that I hear so much from people who say, "Oh, you're on that show with uh, Dr. Anders, and I, I really like the way that he is so kind to people." But that's what we have to do. We have to lead with that kindness. I, you know, I, to me, this is what. The, if you don't, I mean, that's what the Catholic faith is about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we do appreciate it. We appreciate everybody for calling in today. We appreciate uh, those of you who sent us emails or who checked in on YouTube, Facebook. You're all very, very important part of this program, and we thank you quite sincerely. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Hey, thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN. Uh, our live show hits the air at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and then we uh, encore that same show so that if you missed it the first time around, you can always catch it at 11 p.m. Eastern, which is uh, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can also check out the podcast posted for you every day at EWTN.com slash radio. EWTN.com slash radio. Look for the podcast button. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. Look forward to our next visit. Hopefully that'll be you and me and David on Thursday. Have a great day and God bless.